Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Continuing in the book of Luke, in chapter 23, we'll be looking closely at verses 50 through 56. I'll read from verse 44 of chapter 23 to verse 8 of chapter 24. Please listen very carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now, behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision indeed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they... And certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again? And they remembered his words. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen, amen. Please be seated. So the title of today's sermon is Cherishing the body of Christ. We'll look at Joseph of Arimathea and what kind of man he was, look a little bit at the process of his faith, and how he openly loves the Lord Jesus Christ and takes up an amazing place in history as a result of his love towards Christ. We'll also remember that Jesus was crucified on the preparation day. That's important in this story because they were limited on time to complete the work they had to do to bury him before the Sabbath began. And then, again, the women from Galilee openly loved Jesus also. So we'll have another opportunity to see individuals who relate with the Lord Jesus Christ and to learn from them, to examine ourselves in light of what they did and and how they responded to Jesus. And as always, uh, in that time, some questions for us to know to love and to obey God, to take the truth that he gives us today and by his grace remember it and to um, have it written on our hearts and expressed in our hands and in our mouths and in our lives. So, Joseph of Arimathea, he was a, a good and just man, the text tells us in verse 50 and 51. Hear the text again. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision indeed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. The text says he's a good and just man. So this word good here means of good constitution or nature, something that is 
useful or salutary, and about people, good, pleasant, agreeable, joyful, and happy, excellent, distinguished, upright, and honorable. This word was used when people would approach Jesus and say, good master, has to do with the way people viewed him. He had a reputation of being a good man. He was also just. He was righteous, observing divine laws. Is the essence of what it means to be just. And there's a wide sense, which means upright and righteous and virtuous and keeping the commands of God in your personal life. Innocent, faultless, guiltless. And it's used of one whose way of thinking, feeling, and acting is wholly conformed to the will of God and who therefore needs no rectification in the heart or life. And obviously this is true only of Christ our Lord. But Joseph was known to have this quality in his life. He was growing in righteousness. It means approved or acceptable of God. So Joseph was known to be a good and a just man with a a good reputation. In addition, perhaps, in a narrower sense, this word justice means rendering to each his due and that in a judicial sense. So the way he would pass judgment was considered to be just and according to God's law. And we see this in him refusing to consent to the deed that was done by the council. Matthew Henry says, His character is that he was a good man and a just man, a man of unspotted reputation for virtue and piety, not only just to all, but good to all that needed him, and cared to bury the dead as becomes the hope of the resurrection of the dead is one instance of goodness and beneficence. He was a person of quality. So he not only had good doctrine, but he had lovely practice in his life. He was a man who appears to have demonstrated the consistency of the character of a person of God in his life. Mark 15, 43 tells us that he was also a prominent council member. This idea of prominence is bearing oneself becomingly in speech or behavior. One who is of good standing, honorable, influential, often wealthy and respectable. So he was a well-known man. He wasn't the new guy on the council. He didn't barely make his way. He was known. He was respected. And he was influential. And he was good and just. You could see from this he was likely one of the best-known men in the nation. Now, he was also rich. It says in Matthew he was a rich man from Arimathea, which, as you can see, kind of goes along with this prominence this position of influence that he had. Rich just means wealthy and abounding in material resources. And Joseph demonstrates to us, as we studied today in Christian Instruction Hour, the beauty of gaining wealth for the purpose of glorifying God and advancing the kingdom of God. And while it is more likely for a camel to go through the eye of the needle, we see by faith even a rich man can walk with God. Now, it, the text tells us he had not consented to their decision and deed. Now, let's look back. Let's recall that after Christ's betrayal and arrest, he had this overnight examination that took place by the high priest, and then that morning meeting of the council, which didn't fit with any of the traditional legal requirements. It was a, a kangaroo court. And then how they took him to Pilate to crucify him. They wanted him killed. They made a decision. They wanted him killed by the Romans. And they banded together in that decision and took him to Pilate. Joseph did not go along with this decision and with this deed. Matthew Henry says it this way. A counselor, a senator, a member of the Sanhedrin, one of the elders of the Jewish church. Having said this of him, it was necessary to add that though he was of that body of men who had put Christ to death, yet he had not consented to their counsel, and to their deed. Though it was carried by the majority, yet he entered his protest against it and followed not the multitude to do evil. Note, says Matthew Henry, that evil counsel or deed to which we have not consented shall not be reckoned as our own act. Nay, he not only dissented openly from those that were enemies to Christ, 
but he consented secretly with those that were his friends. Do you think there are similar evil systems that pressure Christians into silence today? Do you think there are similar threats to reputation and prominence and justly attained wealth in today's world for those who will stand up and not consent with the evil deeds of this generation? How do you respond to these pressures? Bach says, he probably rejected the deal with Judas, the council's verdict, and their sending Jesus to Pilate. Joseph must have been absent from the evening trial, which gave a unanimous decision, as we see in Mark 14. In Luke's view, Joseph is a remnant saint, one who is faithful in the midst of the disobedience of others and who participates in the fulfillment of promises made to that nation. Brothers and sisters, let's consider for a moment, will will you pause and consider with me the courage that God gave to Joseph? You know, I heard a wise man say one time, when you read a book, you should remember at least a couple of things from the book. Why read it otherwise? When you think about it, you should be able to come up with a couple of things. When you think back on this sermon, I want you to remember courage. One of the things to remember from this message is to see the unfolding fruits of courage that God gave to Joseph in his life. First, this first fruit is that he stands against the decision and the deed of the Jewish leaders. He was not afraid to be singled out as amongst the minority. And he was in the minority, clearly. And this council had already proven itself as vicious. Are there vicious forces at work in today's world? We see more. John 19.38 tells us, After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. So he had been a secret disciple of Jesus Christ. And he made a decision to no longer keep that secret. When he dissented and he stood up for the rights of the Lord Jesus Christ as a man within that system of justice, and then when he went to Pilate, It was no longer a secret. And brothers and sisters, I hope you will see that it is without fail true of every Christian that the Lord will take you through these types of paths in your life where you will know that if you continue to remain silent and to remain as a secret disciple, you will be unfaithful to him. In Mark 15, we see these words that show us more of what was happening in his life. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. I will tell you, I feel this. In my profession as a physician, I feel this. There are forces at work squeezing physicians in today's world to be silent and to not stand up for truth. Pray for me and others in the field of medicine to take courage, to learn from Joseph of Arimathea. What did he have to lose? Everything. But what did he have to gain? More than everything. Eternal life. So Joseph had a right view of things. We need a right view of things. Where is he from? He's from this city called Arimathea, a city of the Jews. So it was a city that was ruled by a Jewish ruling council that had elders there. And it was known to be a Jewish city. Bach says he's from Arimathea, probably his birthplace or earlier home, since he has a tomb in Jerusalem and serves on the Sanhedrin. All the Gospels mention this locale in order to prevent confusion with any other Joseph. The exact location of Arimathea is not certain, but many suggest Ramah, Samuel's birthplace, Old Testament Samuel, which is known as Ramathaim Zophim from 1 Samuel 1, verse 1. This town is located about five miles north of Jerusalem. So the background on this is when you look at the Greek word for Arimathea and the Greek word used there in 1 Samuel 1.1, they appear to be the the same place from the Septuagint. So the word Arimathea means heights, and 
Uh, it's the name of several cities in Palestine, and it appears to have been the same birthplace of Samuel in Mount Ephraim. So we see here this subtle providential connection with the meaning of the word heights. Some would, some would rise up to follow Christ. And also the connection with Samuel, who was an Old Testament good guy, filled with faith, who followed, uh, even in the midst of the threats from Saul, he followed Now, we know about Joseph that he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Now, that gets me excited. That should get you excited too. Because he's said to be waiting for the kingdom of God in two uh, of the synoptics. And then in, in Matthew and in John, he's described as being a disciple of Jesus. So do you hear that? A disciple of Jesus is one who is waiting on the kingdom of God. Note, please, how being a disciple of Jesus means that you are waiting for the kingdom of God. And we're going to talk a lot more about this as we move through the book of Luke. We've already talked a lot about it before. And the whole book of Acts opens this up for us as well. So, Jesus brings this together when they the disciples of Jesus, those who are learners of Jesus, those who are followers of Jesus, they asked him, please tell us how to pray. So one way to be a follower of Jesus is to pray the way that he told us to pray. And you'll see here in this prayer how our prayer life is founded on waiting for the kingdom of God. Now it came to pass as he was praying in a certain place when he ceased that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. So he said to them, when you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The Lord's Prayer is founded on waiting for the kingdom of God. You cannot pray properly as a Christian if you are not waiting for the kingdom of God. You cannot work properly as a kingdom unless you understand how your faithfulness fits into Christ bringing his kingdom from heaven to earth. Waiting for the kingdom of God to come to earth as it is in heaven is essential to being a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. So it would logically follow, would it not, to understand the kingdom of God. Say amen. 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 We need to understand the kingdom of God. We need to understand who the king is, where he is, what he's doing, what his goals are, what his promises are for this earth, and what he intends to accomplish through bringing his kingdom to earth, and when he's doing it, and how he's doing it, and why he's doing it. We'll get to that in time. So, here we see the source of Joseph's courage. Okay, this is why he was not afraid. His fear melted away. His, the Jews who were this big in his eyes, were now nothing. Their threats vanished away as less than nothing, and they were replaced, brothers and sisters, please, by his devotion to Christ and his kingdom. Both Christ and his kingdom. You should maybe even say that out loud. Both Christ and His kingdom. You cannot faithfully follow Christ and not love His kingdom. You cannot faithfully love His kingdom without loving Him. It works both ways. But they always, always go together. And in in this time, for for Joseph, it would have been his understanding from the Bible he had at the time, the Old Testament, and his understanding of multiple texts in the Old Testament that we also understand now 
Jesus fulfilled. He was waiting on the king, right? To be waiting on the kingdom is to be waiting on the king. And he saw his king. Think of it. He was there. He understood. And it came to him. And he did not consent to their deed. Matthew Henry says about Joseph, he believed the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah and his kingdom and expected the accomplishment of them. This was the man that appears upon this occasion to have had a true respect for the Lord Jesus. He saw him for who he was, who he is. Back to Henry. Note, there are many who are hearty in Christ's interests, how though they do not make any show in their outward profession of it, yet will be more ready to do him a piece of real service when there is occasion than others who make a greater figure and noise. So we don't know, do we, exactly when Joseph, uh, by God's grace, overcame his fear of the Jews. And he remained perhaps silent for a time, not in fear, but in wisdom. And he knew the time was coming for him to express his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So just because you're silent doesn't mean you're faithless. That's the point there. Okay? Just because you're silent doesn't necessarily mean you're faithless. Sometimes it may be an act of wisdom. Again, this is another thing that emphasizes our desperate need to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God and to have wise counselors in our lives that we can talk to. Look, this vaccine mandate stands right in the path of this. There will come a time for many people when they cannot remain silent. And they will stand up and choose to be singled out and say, I'm not going to do it. There's a lot to be said there. But you can see the similarity, the pressures of this world that squeeze us into silence, squeeze us into complicity, with falsehood, Joseph did not consent to their decisions, their decision or their deed. So what does he do instead? Now, I hope you will just really meditate on these words and even allow the Lord God, because he gives us pictures here, right? That you will see the love, the tender love of Joseph for his king. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. So, this good man, with the respect of the people known to be just, having national influence and notable wealth, because of his devotion to Jesus Christ, steps out of the obscurity of unexpressed faith and walks brightly into the good works prepared beforehand by Christ for him to do. Risking everything he has, he doesn't send someone else to secretly ask Pilate. He goes himself. He doesn't send someone else to get the body of Jesus down. He goes himself. He doesn't have someone else touch and hoist Christ's dead body down from the cross, becoming unclean. He himself wraps the body of Christ in linen. Joseph's own arms held Jesus' lifeless body and laid it into the tomb, his new tomb. You see, Joseph cherished Christ and his body. Matthew Henry says, he went to Pilate, the judge that condemned him and begged the body of Jesus for it was at his disposal. And though he might have raised a party sufficient to have carried off the body by violence, yet he would take the regular course and do it peaceably. He took it down, it should seem, with his own hands and wrapped it in linen. They tell us that it was the manner of the Jews to roll the bodies of the dead as we do little children in their swaddling clothes. And that the word here used signifies as much. 
so that the piece of fine linen which he bought whole, he cut into many pieces for this purpose. It is said of Lazarus, he was bound hand and foot. Grave clothes are to the saints as swaddling clothes, which they shall outgrow and put off when they come to the perfect man. So we see the heart of this man who understood who he was holding. He knew this moment. And even more than a mother swaddles her newborn baby, cherishing that baby's body, looking after that baby's skin, Joseph cherished the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Swaddled at his birth. Swaddled at his death. Amen. Is this not beautiful? The love that Joseph had for the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. This should inspire us. This should help us. We, may we get a taste of this love in our own lives. And may we serve in love like Joseph. Now I want us to see also that Nicodemus and Joseph work together. Now while this doesn't come to us from the book of Luke, it's worth noting for a couple of reasons, I think. John 19.39 says, And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now, about this, Bach says, In a detail that the synoptics lack, John 19 mentions that Joseph and Nicodemus anointed Jesus with 100 pounds of spices, an amount normally reserved for a king. Such anointing was common, though the amount of spices was not. So here we see another example that these men knew. They understood who they were handling. I also want us to see two things here. Both of these men were afraid. They were fearful to publicly express their love for the Lord Jesus Christ. They had been afraid of the Jews. You know, John chapter 3, Nicodemus came in broad daylight? No. He came sneaking at night. He's not sneaking at night anymore. And it's almost as if these two men perceive their earlier failures in how they dealt with Jesus. And they say no more. And they come together in some kind of what must have been very special friendship. And they say, let's do this together. Nicodemus, I'll get the body. You get a king's worth of spices. And we'll do it together. Do you see these men? They're not afraid anymore. And they come together as brothers to express to the world forever and ever. We are not afraid. And so, you know, this goes, doesn't it, so deeply to all of us. We're all afraid. And, and the message here is do not fear. The resurrected king loves you. And he will watch after you. And he will take care of you. And the threats to your life are less than nothing when you are in his hands. And he will ask you to do things to come against these wicked forces that hate him and his kingdom. If you think that you can be a Christian and walk all your life in obscurity like Nicodemus and Joseph did, then you don't understand Christ and his kingdom. You don't understand the joy of the battle. And you'll miss it. And you'll think it's just about being safe. Nicodemus and Joseph knew that it was not about being safe. It was about loving their king and being faithful to him. Rush Dooney says, and this is another point to be made here, history has never been dominated by majorities, but only by dedicated minorities who stand unconditionally on their faith. So these two men didn't look around and count heads. They looked at Jesus and saw the crown on his great head. And that's all that mattered to them. So what did he do? 
He took it, his body and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. So there's some, some beautiful things here for us to consider that God, the best author, no one can write like God. Can we agree on that? <laughs> the story he crafted from the beginning of the ages that he's carrying out and he's the most important protagonist in the whole thing. Well, he wrote this part of the story for us and we'll see some things if we have eyes to see and ears to hear. Just as Jesus emerged as a newborn from a virgin womb, his lifeless body goes to rest in a virgin tomb. There are things being demonstrated to us here about Christ and his uniqueness. And this is what Joseph and Nicodemus understood. There's no one like him. And the form of his birth and the place of his burial demonstrate this, tell this message to us. Henry says, it was a sepulcher, I don't know if I pronounced that right, <laughs> in which never man before was laid. For he was buried on such an account as never anyone before him was buried. Only in order to his rising again the third day by his own power. And he was to triumph over the grave as never any man did. So God does these things. God gives us ways that he accomplished things in the life of Christ. That tells us there was no one like him ever before or ever since. You see, his body was not buried in a hole dug into the earth. His body was placed into a man-made tomb, a cleft, if you will, hewn into the rock for the purpose of placing a dead body. And this reminds me of what Moses experienced in Exodus 33. He said, please show me your glory. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This is similar, but not the same as Jesus. He was in the cleft of the rock. He was under the Father's constant protection while he was in the grave. But when the Father came to him, he brought him up. And they were face to face once again. Jesus, the one and only who can be safe in the Father's presence. Of course, we in him are safe. But apart from him, no man can see him. Now, there's more that we learn about the place of Christ's tomb from John, which are important points to consider in the grand epic story of redemption. Remember how we looked at the veil being torn in two and the cherubim there, and that takes us through the veil, not only into the Holy of Holies, but what is the Holy of Holies? It is the return to Eden, because what was it, Eden? The two cherubim with flaming swords. We see similar things revealed to us in these words from John. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. So, do you see this? By God's providence and his glorious authorship of reality, Joseph's tomb is nearby. The man he saved, the man he brought to faith, Oh, he's got a tomb nearby. You don't just, you know, <coughs> tell your workers real quick to go over there and... He, he, no, that had been done. You see, God brings all these things together. So this allowed them to complete their service to Christ without breaking the Sabbath that was drawing near. These were faithful people. As you'll see, the women were the same way. They were going to serve Christ and love Him, but they were not going to break His commandments as they did so. So I want us to see here how verse 41 in John 19 brings together Christ's death and burial with a garden. Do I need to say anything else? You see this, don't you? You see, the tomb 
was in a garden. What happened in the first garden? Death came. What happened in this garden? Victory over death came to this garden. So just as creation began in new life from a garden, but fell into death in a garden, the new creation begins in new life in a garden resurrection. God is an artist, brothers and sisters. He doesn't just give us the facts. He adorns the glory of his story. And this should thrill us to know. See, we know him better through this, do you see? He's revealing who he is to us as the great artist of all things, the great creator. Not just of creation, but of the story that we're all a part of. You're a part of it. The same care that he gave to these details of the story, he's giving to all the details of the stories of the people that are his. This isn't just there, it's you too. He's weaving your life with the same tender fatherly hands. Now, Luke takes a little bit of a, little bit of a detour from the storyline, but it's an important point. That day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew near. So Jesus was crucified on a preparation day, not on a Sabbath day. So briefly, I want you to recall the prior sermons regarding the year of Christ's death being A.D. 30. Okay? It seems most likely that Jesus Christ was crucified in A.D. 30 based on the things that we've discovered about calendars and Lots of technical things that are hard to describe. Okay? We can look at it. But we're going to start with that, and we're going to put that landmark down in this discussion. And in that particular year, AD 30, Nisan 15, which is Passover, began on, at sunset, which is, you know, their days always began on sunset, at sunset, on the day that we now call Friday, okay, no, Thursday, on the day that we, that's wrong on the notes, it's very confusing, on a day that we call Thursday, okay, we call the day Thursday, and think with me, Nissan 14, the daytime part of Nissan 14 was Thursday when he was crucified, and then Nissan 15 begins at sunset on that Thursday, okay, Nissan 15 is a, a high Sabbath, the Passover day was a high Sabbath, it was a Sabbath day you could not work. So Jesus was crucified on a Thursday. If, if these facts are accurate, we don't want to be overly dogmatic, but if these facts are accurate, it's most likely that Jesus Christ our Lord was crucified on a Thursday. And so that means the Last Supper with the disciples was not actually a Passover meal, but rather the first unleavened bread meal of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Remember, there's eight Feast of Unleavened Bread uh, meals at sunset the first of which is on Nissan at sunset between 13 and 14 Nissan. Now, without drawing this out, it can be confusing, and I hesitated to get into it again because I didn't want to draw it all out for you. The main point is that they were in a bit of a rush to get this done. Perhaps that's why Nicodemus and, and Joseph divided and conquered instead of being together at the cross. But it's also important, here's another fact from Scripture that tells us Jesus was not crucified on a Sabbath. Okay? So, what, why, why is that important? Because if he ate a Passover meal with his disciples the night before, which is a lot of times what tradition will tell you, and that means he was crucified the next daytime, which would have been still Sabbath time. But that doesn't add up. Because it's very clear here, he was not crucified on the Sabbath day. He was crucified on a preparation day. Now, why is that important? Okay. These are details that are in the scriptures that liberals point out to Christians who are dogmatic about Good Friday. About Friday being the day that Jesus was crucified on. And so, I want you to be biblical in your thinking about this and not allow tradition to get more authority than it should. Okay, moving on. So what's going on right now in the city 
There's a lot happening. Don't forget about the three hours of Egypt-like darkness. Because there was the darkness and then the sun was darkened. Two different darknesses. And it was a poured out darkness. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face. There was no light. There would have been no preparation of the lambs. The lambs would not have been ready in time for most people. Some would have gotten it done, but most would not have gotten the lambs in time. So at this moment in the city, as they're trying to get Jesus' body down from the cross, they're trying to get to Pilate, there would have been great turmoil. Imagine being in a place like Jerusalem with millions of people there, and there's no light in the middle of the day for three hours. And there's earthquakes. You think turmoil? Okay, so let that sink in. That's what Joseph and Nicodemus are dealing with when they're trying to get all... I mean, he went and got spices, 100 pounds worth. And I mean, maybe he had it already. We don't know. But nevertheless, this is what they were dealing with. Hardly any lambs have been slain, probably. The preparation efforts prior to the Passover meal have been thrown into confusion and rush. And think about it now. As Christ, our sacrifice is being prepared and laid in his tomb, the slaughtered lambs that would have been ready, some of them would have been ready, were being prepared and laid into the cooking fires. And this goes back to what we said before, how the whole Passover week, every part of it, Jesus as the Lamb of God is demonstrating and he that he is the Lamb of God. And it's just glorious to see the way God puts the story together and carries it out. All right, next. Not only do we see Joseph and Nicodemus openly loving Christ, but we see the women from Galilee openly loving Christ as well. And this doesn't surprise us, does it? Because they were there from the start. The strength of attachment that we talked about last time I preached, that we want to have for Jesus, that Nicodemus and Joseph had developed. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed after and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. So the Sabbath commandment infuses the entire section here. It's very important to these people who are loving the Lord Jesus Christ to keep the Sabbath, to obey His commandments. You can never pit the love of Jesus Christ against His commandments. Lord Jesus Christ will never put you in a spot where you are required to disobey Him in order to love Him. That's the devil's way of thinking. That's evil rationalization. Don't let that kind of thinking get into your brain. They didn't. And if there was ever a time, this is the body of the king. No, we're not going to break the king's commandments. So let's see about these women. Again, they are commended. Can I ask you, where are the disciples? I mean, are they still running at this point in time? Do you see how silence is a form of rebuke for these poor disciples who just had lost faith. There's no mention of them at the funeral. The barrier, the burial of their Lord, there's no mention that they're even present. But these women are present. Joseph's present. Nicodemus is present. See, these women, they never ran away. They stayed with Jesus all the way from Galilee. They never left his side. They were with him the whole time. And they watched his body all the way into the tomb. And when they couldn't stay with him, they were preparing spices and fragrant oils for him. And they were keeping his Sabbath commandment. Everything they were doing was focused on being with him and obeying him. They rested on his Sabbath according to his commandments. As I said, if there was ever a reason to break the Sabbath commandment, surely it was to anoint his body, but instead they anointed him with their obedience to his commands. Matthew Henry says, Busy as they were in this preparation, they rested on the Sabbath day and did none of this servile work thereon, not only according to the custom of their nation, but according to the commandments of their God, which though the day be altered, is still in full force. Remember the Sabbath day. Brothers and sisters, 
Does this thrill your soul? To know that the Christian Sabbath exists and was given to us, made by God for man, for us to have one in seven as a whole day to give to Him, to worship Him, to enjoy Him and His people together, to lay aside our work and to focus on Him. This should thrill you. This is a foretaste of heaven. You know this, right? Where we will rest forever from our work. And when we are together here on His day, hearing His Word, loving Him, keeping His Sabbath commandment, we are the happiest people on earth. Are you blessed by the Sabbath, brothers and sisters? I mean, look, are you hurrying up to get out of here so you can go get lunch and transact on the Lord's day? These women, this Joseph and Nicodemus, they wouldn't even transact on the Sabbath for the body of Jesus Christ. Think on that. Think on that. Now certainly there's necessity, right? There's times when because of necessity these things come up and the Lord leads us by His Spirit. But is it even a part of your thinking? Next, Henry goes on, who attended the funeral, not any of the disciples, but only the women that came with him from Galilee, who as they stayed by him while he hung on the cross, so they followed him, all in tears, no doubt, and beheld the sepulcher where it was, which was the way to it, and how his body was laid in it. They were led to this, not by their curiosity, but by their affection to the Lord Jesus, which was strong as death, and which many waters could not quench. Here was a silent funeral and not a solemn one. And yet his rest was glorious. And so these women, they go and they stay really as, as long as they can, don't they? To see what's going, to, what's going on, where his body is. They're thinking ahead to how they're going to continue to love him in his death. They didn't know about the resurrection, did they? They didn't know that the next time that they saw that body, things were going to be a lot different. They didn't know. But, you know, they would be the first ones to discover it. Isn't that beautiful? They would be the first ones to see him. So some questions to know and to love and to obey God. I want you to ask yourself, what brought Joseph and Nicodemus, similarly, out of fearful inaction into this beautiful display of courageous love towards Christ? What, what brought what, Why did that happen? How can it happen in your life? What forms of inaction have you been squeezed into by this world because you are afraid? Reputation, job, possessions. We laugh and scorn these things in this earth because we have life eternal and we have the possessions of heaven that are ours and none can separate us from him. Well, you live this way. See, that's what happened to them. They were gripped by Christ and his kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. No power from hell or Washington, D.C. can strip that promise of its powers in your life. He will feed you. He will clothe you. He will secure you. He will lead you. He will guide you. More surely than the sun comes up and runs its course and goes down every day. Because his promises are forever. So he may take it all away. But he's still going to feed you, clothe you, secure you, and guide you as long as you are seeking his kingdom. Waiting for his kingdom. Loving him as your king so much that his kingdom is your life's pursuit as you serve him. So the answer is their adoration and their devotion to Jesus Christ. They were given an accurate understanding. They were given eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to understand who this man really is and how he is their all in all. He is their salvation. He is their only hope. And he is to be worshipped. And this overcame their fear of the Jews. Love 
Perfect love casts out all fear. And we can talk about this all day, but this, this is, God has to do this in you. This is not a complicated topic. But do you want this to happen in your life? Is it happening in your life? Somehow Joseph had his affections fixed on Christ and his kingdom. So what kept the women of Galilee from fleeing away? They were at his side the whole time. Well, as is often the case, the the women got it first. (laughs) The same thing that changed Joseph and Nicodemus had changed them already. I mean, now would be a great time, not going to do it, to go and open up our scriptures and read the story of Mary Magdalene. She was there. She wasn't going anywhere except right where Jesus was. The prostitute. Delivered of demons. He's my king. I'm not going anywhere. I'm serving him. I'm following him. So what kept them? This devotion. This gratitude. This affection for Jesus Christ himself. And for the glory of his kingdom to come. For everyone to know this man. For everyone to know this man's work on the cross, his perfections, his glory, his salvation. For everyone to know that the first Adam failed and the second Adam did not. And for all the world to be touched, beautified, renewed, and restored by him. Every person, every relationship, every family, every church, every community, every nation, every continent, and if there's any more globes with people, every globe in the universe renewed and restored. Devil destroyed, sin destroyed, death destroyed, corruption destroyed, sickness, disease destroyed, loneliness gone, sadness blown away like the sunshine over fall. That'll keep you close to Jesus. But you know, when we fade away from him, when we don't live this way, it's just because we've forgotten who he is. And we've forgotten the glory of his kingdom. It really is that simple. When sin seems attractive to you or to me. So may God deliver us and give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to love and minds to understand always who our Lord is. And the glory of His glory and the glory of his kingdom. Now, I want to ask you a question for you to consider that's a part of this. How are these two things related? Number one, being a a disciple of Christ, being a follower of Christ. And number two, waiting on the kingdom of God. I've given you the answer already during the sermon. But I hope that you will think on this and consider this. And it goes back to what I've already said. You cannot love Christ, your king, if you do not love his kingdom and seek his kingdom in your life and how you live, your family. And this means, practically speaking, every kingdom has a law, a system of righteousness. And the only perfect king is Christ. The only perfect kingdom is Christ's kingdom. And the only perfect law is his law. And part of the devil's plan is to divide Christ the King from his kingdom and from his law and present to you a truncated view, a false view of who Jesus Christ is and what he's doing. And present to you this false idea that you can love him and not love his law. That you can follow him wholly and fully and know your fullest worship and service to him apart from his law. Oh, we're not under the law. Amen. We're under Christ the King. And the King has a law. And it is the law of love. And we obey him because we love him. And that's the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God, and it's worked out in our lives. And in history, both before the Reformation, but 
particularly after the Reformation, it's been lost now in many ways, there was a very robust understanding of the role of the law of God in the life of the Christian. I hope that you will think about that. So the connection between a disciple of Christ and waiting on the kingdom of God includes loving God's law. So brothers and sisters, we pray and we work because we're waiting on God's kingdom. Now, briefly, has anyone here wondered about how the body of Christ in this story may unpack and expand to further considerations about the body of Christ in the world today. You know, if you look around, we've done this before, you are the body of Christ, if you look at one another. Or when we take the bread and the wine, another display of the body of Christ that we're told in scriptures. Have you ever thought of the church as a lifeless body? Have you ever, something like that ever crossed your mind? Or maybe your family or yourself? How was Jesus Christ raised from the dead? By the Holy Spirit of God. The Father, we're told in Ephesians, raised the Son from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. How will Christ's church be revived? By the outpouring of His Holy Spirit. Was the body of Christ, while it was lifeless, was it absent from the earth? No. Was it active in the earth? We can be the same way. The church can be present in the world, but in a lifeless kind of form. May God... Pour out his Holy Spirit upon his bride in this world. Unto resurrection glory of the bride. Take some time also I ask you to consider more the idea of Christ coming from a virgin womb and going to a virgin tomb. And just worship God in the glory of his artistic greatness. And the garden in Eden, and the garden in Christ's tomb, and don't forget the garden to come that we see in Revelation. God is speaking to us about His power over all things in a beautiful way. He doesn't just control all things. He does it with beauty and glory and brings us into it like little children. We will dance with glee in the Revelation garden, and we should be dancing with glee now in this garden in which you sit today. You're in a garden. A place of life, a place of growth, right? A place with water and food. A place where you're fed. A place of growth and life. That's what it means to be alive in Christ. So, we live in an interesting world and I think we can see without stretching Many of the similarities between what Joseph faced, what these women faced, and what we face today. And not to say that our generation is the only generation that's faced these kinds of pressures. But I think similar to what was going on then, these pressures in today's world are widespread. And they are focused. And they are strong. And they can really bring a lot of fear. They can make us afraid. But instead, may God grant us to be like Joseph, Nicodemus, to see Christ for who he is, and to simply follow him and fear not. Amen. Amen. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we acknowledge to you that apart from your Holy Spirit working in us, we will never have this boldness. Lord God, we will be like the disciples, um, not mentioned, not around when great things are happening. And Lord, we, we ask for you to pour out your spirit upon us, to accept our pleas before you this day, Lord, acknowledging that we are weak and that we so often focus on the threats and the fears 
and lose faith and lose heart. But instead, Father, we together look to your holy throne today, remembering that you are the maker of all things and that by your word all things were brought into existence and by the word of your power, Lord Jesus Christ, all things are held together. And that you walk this earth in perfection, that you raise the dead, that you calm storms that you walked on water, that you healed all diseases and you demonstrated all power over all forces of darkness and that you came back from the dead and that you ascended into heaven after teaching about the kingdom of God where you took your throne over the kingdom of God from whence you are pouring out your spirit unto the destruction of all of your enemies. Oh Lord God, give us faith, we pray, to see you for who you are and see these pitiful, futile, puny enemies as what they are, less than a drop in the bucket. And just love you and follow you. In Jesus' name.